This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we support design engineers and make lightning protection easy. You're listening to the Struck Podcast. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And here on Struck, we talk about everything aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. All right, welcome back to the Struck Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's show, first in our new segment, we're going to talk about Delta, where they're going to be one of the last airlines to stop blocking middle seats. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about COVID and whether we're out of the woods yet, which the answer is hopefully. Uh, number two, there was an interesting article recently released about FAA regulations for evacuations and how those um, testing protocols might be kind of flawed. Uh, lending that data to be maybe a misrepresentation of how safe uh, evacuation procedures are. Um, we'll also chat a little bit about the Virgin Galactic VSS getting closer to potentially making these uh, pretty amazing um, orbital launches. And then our engineering segment, we're going to talk about the Heart Aerospace ES-19. Finnair is considering purchasing 20 of these. And it looks like a pretty interesting little electric aircraft. And lastly, in our EVTOL segment, we'll talk about a little bit about stocks, and a lot about the Horizon Caverit X5. So, Alan, first, let's go to Delta. Uh, you've been on a bunch of flights recently. I was on a mm-hmm. bunch of flights in March. Um, were any of your middle seats um, not occupied or at least blocked? Uh, so I flew southwest a couple of times, and when the flights were not full, they would tell you to not sit in the middle seat, right? But they were allowing Which, people to sit yeah. in middle seats. People are like, no, right. no, no, I want to sit in this middle seat. Are you sure? Are you sure she moved? <laughs> yeah, we've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, but Southwest was one of the first ones to block off middle seats along with Delta. But Delta's the last one to relinquish that middle seat and let people occupy it. I think it's going to start on May 1st, which is uh, there has been some problems with Delta because they can't, they have, they don't have enough airplanes, enough staff to staff the, the the sort of influx of the traveling public that wants to get back on an airplane to go see family or go on vacation or whatever. So they need to open those middle seats to yeah. just handle the crush of people that are going to be uh, one probably vaccinated or, or or two not likely to get it and want to go get out of the house. That that's mm-hmm. going to happen as. It's springtime, and that's what happens. And if there's any school vacation wrapped up into it, you're going to see a lot of people hit the road. Well, you and I haven't really checked in recently about COVID incidences on planes, but it, there's really been no news about it, has there? I mean, no. air travel's picked up a lot, and middle seats have been occupied in most of my flights. I mean, I think only one yeah. of my like four or five legs, um, my recent trip, that uh, we just didn't have a full plane so i had a middle seat open next to me but all the other ones i was actually sitting in the middle seat because it's just easier i'm not a i'm not too picky about where i seat up sit if i'm gonna like do writing or do work like doesn't yeah. really matter, doesn't matter. I'll just <laughs> jump to the oh yeah i'll just jump in the, the one of the the front the front uh seat so i'm off the plane faster which i prefer anyway so um yeah i'm not sure that it's really been a big deal so i'm not sure people should really be that nervous i don't know i didn't feel particularly nervous about traveling sitting in a middle seat or having a full flight but i don't know i mean the the uh air circulation and i mean the cleanliness system is is yeah and the cleanliness seems to be pretty 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 good right yeah there's Mm -hmm. there's been no reports or no uh information about 
transmission during aer- on airplanes. There has been almost none over the last year, which is surprising uh, because you think of airplanes as being sort of this enclosed airspace thing where you're next to somebody for a couple of hours. But for whatever reason, and I'm not sure we're ever going to find out for sure, the ventilation systems must be very well equipped to, to turn over the airflow inside the airplane and control where where aerosols are going. And two, having the mask, I'm sure, makes a, 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 a somewhat of a difference. How much, nobody knows. But uh, there just haven't been any confirmed transmission, especially on any large scale, via flights. Zero, at least in the United States. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, speaking of other full flight um, news, the FAA, uh, you know, makes evacuation tests and there are results that need to get released um, recently. And it sounds like they've been delayed because and this is uh, it sounds like still a little bit of speculation, but that they might be embarrassed of the results of these tests. So it sounds like the FAA did not include a lot of people that would be representative of a normal you know, a normal flight, which includes people over 60, uh, you know, all the carry on baggage, service animals, the obese people, um, individuals whose primary language is in English, um, Kids. children sitting in their parents' lap. Yep. Right. So it sounds like if you're doing an evacuation test and you don't include all those people, which, yeah, a flight is full of, it's a very diverse group of, of people, then how generalizable is that test? So, Alan, you're familiar with some of these tests. Um, mm-hmm. it, it sounds like Pete uh, Buttigieg has some uh, work to do figuring out what's going on here, but what does it sound like to you? Well, Congress has been pushing uh, for the last couple of years to to create more realistic evacuation tests because the concern has always been that you can load up a test with essentially healthy, I want to say healthy, people that, that are very mobile. Let's put it that way. People who yeah. can get up and get off the airplane pretty quickly and are in good enough shape to go down the slide or go down the evacuation routes without really seriously hurting themselves. Uh, so that's like your best marker, right? So you you put a bunch of healthy 20 to 50-year-olds on an airplane and say, all right, everybody get off. Then you're, you're going to get one answer versus if you put a bunch of young kids on it, like you're going to Orlando, That's a diff- that's a totally different answer. But you need to have some basis somewhere of, of what that looks like. And I think it's it's the corollary to this is like when we started um, estimating the average passenger to weigh, to actually to assign a weight to them, which is probably more representative of what the actual weight of a passenger was in the United States versus what they required to count each passenger. And I think it was like 180 pounds sticks in my head. And the average U.S. passenger is somewhere in the 200-pound range. There's some some delta like that that they're trying to adjust to the actual population so this is in that sort of similar vein of let's put it load the airplane for of something representative of a typical flight and let's see what happens and you know the results are not necessarily public yet which is weird because you think that that would be publicized so it makes you you know your first thought is well they're going to try to hide it delay it because it was bad but it may just be because of covid it's not going to come out because things are slower but i do think there's there's some consequences to that and i think the the first consequence is um say it say it's not great say the the evacuation with a more randomized distribution of people on the airplane is not as fast as it you would like it to be okay what is it 
and what is that number and what have recent aircraft emergency situations really needed to get off the airplane what are the what are those there's, there's two variables here how fast you can pull them off and what you really need to get them off in and what those standards are, are those are the standards about emergency exits what they should be who knows but i think the other part of it is that probably the biggest problem on any sort of emergency evacuation is people taking their carrying luggage off like we saw in moscow uh, with that airplane that got struck by lightning and then sort of crash landed and caught on fire on the runway people were taking their carry-on luggage off the airplane and that had to relate in people dying in the back of that airplane because you can't get out and airplanes on fire that's your worst situation you need to get out as fast as you can and people were carrying their stinking luggage yeah so right is it the distribution is it an age distribution whether you're you're, um have a disability or is it just you know in a real world situation people are going to start reaching for the laptops (laughs) which one is worse probably the laptop one is probably the worst case one honestly so you know how realistic can you make these things you probably really can't make them realistic but you need to go back and look at the accidents that have happened to see what people are doing I think it's probably the the bigger thing. And I know it, there was an airline recently that started making you pay, like Ryanair, one of them started making you pay to, for the carry-on luggage. You know, maybe you won't be able to take care, some carry-on luggage on me. Though. Instead of two items, it'll be one because of that emergency exit thing. Moving on, Virgin Galactic, uh, their crazy-looking spaceship that's got this beautiful, like, shiny mirror finish, essentially, <laughs> the VSS Imagine. Uh, which is the third iteration of their spacecraft, l- hopes to be in service next year um, at a, I mean, at the low, low price of a quarter million dollars per passenger, 200 to 250,000. <laughs> and it looks like the plane can take six people up uh, for each flight. So, yep. you know, $1.5 million potentially in revenue per flight. And Virgin hopes to do 400 per day per uh, space for each year. 400 yeah. a year. 400 yeah. flights from each spaceport per year. Yeah. So how many spaceports they'll have, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but that seems like a, a pretty viable business if they can eventually get there. But do you see it being at that 400 flight per year number? That seems like a lot of people to pay a quarter million dollars. Right. I mean, it seems to me it has to be set up in the heart of Silicon Valley where there's that kind of, or someplace like Houston, where there's just a lot of people with, cash or, or austin as it sounds like now uh where there's a lot of cash right i mean you, you need to have an affluent community to be able to afford that and i'm just not certain that this is the right time for it maybe if there's some economic boom when we all get off covid and, and there's you know, the government's just flooding the economy with cash right now uh maybe 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 they can pull it off. It is cool. I mean, there's nothing. Obviously, it's cool. And Richard Branson does a lot of really neat and interesting things. And the aircraft design is concept and the actual uh, the, the aircraft themselves or spacecraft are really interesting. So it's cool technology. I just don't know if they're going to make enough money on the sale of those things. I hope so. I really hope so. But, it, you know, the feeling right now is like, Everybody is so sort of cash tight, not sure what to do with all this cash. Are they going to spend a quarter million on that? I don't know. Don't know. Yeah. I don't know. The idea of this type of flight seems also kind of scary. I don't know. I mean, everyone wants, especially if you have a lot of money and you've sort of made it, 
this seems like a pretty cool thing. Like I've been weightless for six minutes, which is what they claim you'll get in one of these flights. Yeah. That's a pretty amazing experience. And if you have 20, 30, 40, $50 million, that quarter million might be worth it to you. But I don't know what the safety record of this. I mean, this seems pretty uncharted, right? And it, I don't know. It's like somewhat. I don't know. They made a lot of improvements since they had some early on problems, right? So they've changed a lot about the design and the safety aspects. I think conceptually, it's baseline operation. The theory of it are, are pretty safe in terms of space travel, honestly. Because mm -hmm. uh, conceptually, it, it, if you start looking at the individual pieces, they've they've done their homework. Uh, and they've made a bunch of safety improvements after they had that accident. So the, right now, it's probably as safe as it's ever going to be. Obviously, those first couple of, f of flights are going to be really critical to the advancement of it. And Branson's supposedly going to fly in one of the early ones. That'll mm -hmm. be a big deal in terms of selling it, right? So Branson yeah, goes, sure. be like Elon Musk flying in the Starship or a Falcon 9 or something. That, Not that he needs to do that, but if he wanted to promote it, that's how you do it. It's like Bezos doing the Blue Origin spacecraft launch. If you see one of those, I mean, it would really help promote the promote the vehicle especially if you're a passenger yeah like how yeah. could you not be richard branson for his affinity for taking risks oh. and doing and, and not be a yeah. passenger in his plane if you're yeah. gonna fly the plane like you know spacex that's a little different of course i know they have a civilian <laughs> mission coming up you know right. that's a lot different but if you're just gonna sit sit back and yeah you've got to got to take a, a ride in your own your own craft yeah. for sure so moving on uh reporting from aerotime hub uh, Finnair's considering the purchase of 20 uh, ES-19s, which is Hart Aerospace's electric aircraft. Um, and this is not an EVTOL. This is a conventional takeoff. Um, but it seems really cool. And it seems like, a, I mean, I like it <laughs> because we spend all, all of our episodes these days looking at these crazy new EVTOL designs that are, yeah. you know, many very outside the box and arguably wacky. Um, but this one looks like a real plane. <laughs> like it looks, <laughs> it just looks deliciously viable and yeah. reliable. Like it looks like a classic airplane. Um, yeah. Alan, what, what's your take on the, the ES-19 from Hart Aerospace? I think the key to any of these aircraft is finding the right market category and, and how to hit it. And obviously they're not going to have a huge amount of range. Uh, but on the commuter side, you don't need a, a lot of range. And the, the 19 passenger aircraft has been sort of a sweet spot at times, depending on what part of the world um, you're operating in. Those shorter routes can be profitable, right? Because you're not in the air all that long. And uh, if you're if you have a basic aircraft configuration that has proven uh, experience and this type of aircraft design is as a basic aircraft design has been used for a long time so you you got a, a very simplistic shape airplane you know what this flying characteristics are going to be basically all you're doing is changing the propulsion system in it awesome you know i, I think there's you got a pretty good shot of making something like this happen versus the one seat or five seat EV tolls, I think this 19 passenger solution is probably a, a good mix it depends how fast they can certify it though right? that's the whole key if you could certify it in 2022 have it up and running and done i think there's definitely a marketplace for it if it's going to be 2028 different story right so that it's all about getting it to marketplace that is so critical in aircraft development right now so 
the the talk you see a lot of talk about this aircraft on like linkedin and a lot of the sort of the engineer types like like me are like this is a cool aircraft design i think this has a chance of making it and i i agree with that it does it does have a real chance of making it because it does simplify the certification effort which is where you're going to spend a bunch of money so it looks positive really does yeah well and it looks like their goal is certified or for commercial flight by 2026 so five years off Right. Um, I mean, you've talked Realistic. about how long, how long the certification cycle could take. Yeah. Yep. And it seems like it's reusing, like you said, a lot of the traditional design and nuts yep. and bolts of stuff that's flown reliably for and safely for many years. So, right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, you look at their renderings of it and if they didn't tell you that it was electric, you, like, you wouldn't necessarily know. Wouldn't know it. Just looks yeah. like a plane. But like an attractive, like, you know, midsize little um you know that regional jet so yeah it's I know. Very, so well it's very similar to that to the to the new airplane that fedex is buying from textron or cessna right it's 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 like a it's a cargo airplane but it's essentially based on the beach 1900 design it's a high wing beach 1900 and that's what this hard airplane is like it's, which uh textron cessna has been able to put together in a really short amount of time and going to get certified so if if Textron has been able to do it in a couple of years, then there, there's a possibility that the heart could do very similar similar things. So, I mean, is this something that, you know, by 2026, I mean, do you think even by that point, like, hey, battery technology is going to be significantly better? So whatever range they're projecting today, you know, I, I think it's in the, the 300s. Um, that might be 500. That's what I think is interesting where we have to, obviously have to make projections today about what kind of mileage right. and range and speed it could do but five years is a lot of time for technology and you know I, I assume they could just hey now that we've got to the finish line we're certified we actually have 40 percent more range for example and this could apply to yeah. any of these electric aircraft that's right not just the yes yeah. 19 but hey now that we've gotten here this is great we get added, added benefit that batteries are way better these uh, electric engines are way better so we're actually in, in pretty good shape so i guess it's just kind of like getting getting it to the certification stage and getting all the engineering done and then just hoping hoping for the best because just like with laptop batteries all phone batteries everything's gotten better significantly over time so i guess oh, that's sure. something also to look forward to well i think that's going to be an option i think what's going to happen as we get closer towards that certification end of it that you're going to be able to buy the aircraft with a variety of sizes of batteries or amp hours in those packs right so as as they get closer and they figure out the flight characteristics of the airplane you could probably tailor the aircraft in terms of its storage capacity to the routes it wants you're likely to fly so you're not carrying dead weight right so i i think they're going to be a lot more versatility in terms of the electric aircraft because the the amount of batteries you carry is related to the flights you're going to fly so you could in theory lighten up the aircraft because you're not only you're only flying 100 mile flights it make a lot of sense. And I think you're going to see those options go. So not only battery capacity is going to get better as we go along, but I think you're going to allow the variability on how much they're going to carry. So moving on to our final segment today, where we're going to chat some more about EVTOLs. Uh, first, we're going to talk about an article written by Brian Garrett Glazer. Um, who is, he's a managing editor of evtol.com. This article um, is on seekingalpha.com and it's just about 
um, the stock market. So some of these EVTOL stocks, many of which are now going public via SPACs, uh, their valuations are all over the board, right? And right. it's really interesting. And this has been the same similar conversation with Tesla, which is, you know, how could Tesla be valued at, you know, close to all these other car companies combined where they don't sell nearly as many cars, right? Right. And they are still, you know, some of their technology is well proven and very advanced. Some of it's a little more unproven. Um, same goes, well, much more is unproven on the EVTOL side. But, you know, you've got companies like Joby with huge valuations um, that haven't sold a plane that don't really have even a defined exact market yet. So, you know, this article by uh, Mr. Garrett Glazer is interesting. It just sort of speaks to all of that, which is these valuations are all over the place. It's tough to compare them. Urban air mobility is still really young and it's tough to speculate on, on much of the future. Um, what were some of your takeaways, uh, Alan, and just in general on this whole SPAC valuation uh, market? Well, I, I think the market is distorted right now. Not that I've invested in it because I'm not invested in it, but the, I think the, all the COVID and constriction of marketplace and there's a lot of cash floating around has sort of thrown the valuations off a little bit it feels like because some of these valuations of companies that haven't produced a single aircraft are larger than aircraft company existing aircraft companies and that doesn't feel right now eventually the marketplace will level itself out because it has to right so depending on how well a, a particular ev tool company does early on or gets to certification is going to really drive that what that real value is so early on it's going to be hard to tell as we get closer and closer to delivering those first set of aircraft we're going to have a better sense of what that marketplace looks like because orders will drive it now, if you got confirmed orders and they're putting down say $100,000 as a non-refundable deposit. Those are serious orders. And then the market can kind of figure out where that valuation really is versus sort of no real orders yet and nothing that's confirmed yet. So, you know, I think everybody's got, if you've been in the industry a long time, you're looking at this marketplace, you just think that things are really out of whack right now. But that, that's sort of normal. You see it, you see, we've seen this sort of up and down cycle that's happened in the past. So this is not unusual. But when you see it now with such um, aircraft designs that don't have any airtime on them, so to speak, or, pat, or, or piloted time on them, it, mm -hmm. it just starts to raise a little bit of warning flags. Yeah, they may get there. Yeah, mm -hmm. one of the facts that's thrown out uh, in this article is that Joby Aviation is valued at one and a half times that of Leonardo Helicopters, which is one of the largest uh, helicopter manufacturers in the world. Right. And that just goes back to this whole idea of like company that's producing a product that's not yet to market for a market that's sort of still, you know, in the in the fog. It's just crazy. Like, how can you be valued at more than a company that's actually pumping out great helicopters every year? It's just, it's, it's yeah. such an interesting time that we're in where we're speculating what companies could be in the future. And I mean, is in 20 years, are EVTOLs puttering all over? Probably. Maybe. 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 You know, you could definitely see them for lots of different uses. I could see them on farms. And we've talked about going to offshore oil rigs and wind turbine sites and, lots of commercial uses potentially um 
you, but it, the price matters, though. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I think the price matters, and the the likely price point for at least some of these electric aircraft is in the couple million dollar range, and that doesn't play well with the used aircraft market. There's too much of a disparity there for basically similar size aircraft. Uh, you can buy a King Air, two King Airs for that amount of money. And yeah, it's not quote unquote green, but it flies further and has a much better service history because you got oodles of years of experience with it. So it doesn't have all those uh, birthing problems, right? Uh, And I think that's where they're going to have trouble is is you got to convince the marketplace and particularly the pilots that it's worth the extra money. Is it really worth the extra money? And obviously Tesla has gone through that same sort of thing. Is it worth the extra money? for the whiz bang of it. Well, there's a lot of more people that drive cars than fly airplanes. They just are, right? Flying an airplane requires a lot of time, money, experience before you can even fly one. The car, you, <laughs> if you have good vision, <laughs> you could essentially pass a little test, you can pretty much drive a car. So the marketplace is much bigger, I think, and they're gonna have trouble, I, th- I believe they're gonna have trouble finding pilots and are they going to operate some sort of Uber service? And all those things sort of add up. Like, there's so many moving parts to this, and I need every one of them to go exactly right. What's the likelihood of having a positive outcome? Don't know, right? But it doesn't feel right yet. And so I think over the next couple of months, the Jobies of the world need to kind of punch this one down and, and show how they're going to make this happen. Yeah, that's an interesting notion. Uh, My mind started trailing off to, you know, if you own, if you bought an EV TOL, you know, 15 years from now and you own one personally and something breaks, something needs to get fixed, just like you'd fix your Cessna or your own little private Mm -hmm. plane. um, How much more does that part cost now? Just like, you know, owning a BMW or Mercedes versus owning a Toyota. I had a friend who's like, yeah, he's like, man, I love my BMW, but it just kills me when I have to pay 300 bucks for an oil change versus you know 50 bucks right. for your toyota because it has to go to the bmw dealership it has to get their special you know their weight oil and their right you know all their brands <laughs> you're paying a full brand name price for every little thing right and that's part of the experience like you don't buy a bmw if you can't afford the oil change right well it's like you know you could find a part for a you know a little cessna um for x amount of dollars but is that equivalent yeah. part got to come only from a company like joby and it's it will five times the cost the cost yeah i mean is there even yeah for market answer that's yes yes <laughs> that's the way that works yeah, yeah. that's like totally the way it works but uh, i'll give you the sort of the, the 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 downside risk you take so on any new aircraft company the downside risk is that if you buy the airplane the airplane company's not there in two years and you can't get parts what do you mm, do yeah that's true what do you do yeah i think about right. that a lot with these startups that smartly offer like lifetime warranty or like lifetime whatever to this like software thing i'm like you could be out of business next year like i've never right. heard of your company before like okay like i'll get a spend four hundred dollars on this fancy new piece of luggage with a lifetime warranty but what's the odds that your company exists in five years very right like very slim you know no, you get acquired that, and they don't honor the warranty anymore right so which is the which is the risk right like eclipse aircraft it it's it was a problem if you own an eclipse aircraft and it's a great airplane it's hard getting parts it's hard and then you know trying to create that secondary market for an airplane that is no longer manufactured is really difficult you know with a cessna or a beach or 
Bombardier or Embraer or somebody, you feel like they're going to be there next week. Or Cirrus, they're going to be there next week, right? And so you, you, I, you're more willing to buy the Cirrus Vision jet than a comparable new company airplane just for that reason, because you're likely to own it for multiple years and you're going to need maintenance and service. And the way the FAA system is set up, unlike cars, the FAA airplane business is set up, you got to buy parts from the essentially the manufacturer or approved manufacturer of that component. And if they don't make them, it gets really hard to keep your plane airworthy. And that's a huge risk on a multi-million dollar aircraft, huge risk. So moving on, uh, our last segment today, well, not segment, our last um, talking point here is the Caverit X5 by Horizon. Um, and their CEO was quoted in a bunch of, uh, had a bunch of quotes in a recent Rob Report article, uh, just talking about safety of electric, of electric air taxis and what that industry is going to have to look like. And he had some really thoughtful quotes just about how high the safety bar has got to be. It's got to be as safer or safer than helicopters because that first, you know, first crash is going to be. Um, such a risk to the whole industry in general. Yeah, it will. So all that being said, that's a good thing that, you know, CEOs of these EVTOL companies recognize that, um, specifically here, here with uh, Horizon. But so their jet, the or not jet, their aircraft, the X-5, um, is interesting. It's a hybrid propulsion. It's got a gas engine that could actually take pump gas. And uh, <laughs> really interesting design. It's pretty sleek. It's got a pusher. Uh, prop in the back. Alan, what's what jumps out to you about the Cavrid X5? Well, that they're using existing sort of fuel engine technology to power it. I think that's the differentiator. And when you do that, you socially have infinite amount of power, so to speak, especially for takeoff and landing, which is what you need. You need a lot of, you're going to burn a lot of electricity on takeoff and landing for these fans. And so you need a big power source. Well, you do that with a gas motor. That's that's how they're going to do it. Uh, and then, you know, uh, there's uh, this is not unique, but there's been a, a good bit of talk about vertical takeoff, vertical landing is gas, gas powered or hydrogen powered or something. And then forward flight is pure electric battery. That would make some sense to me. But, you know, you got this extra weight of a motor sitting out on the back of this airplane. And what do you do? What's this? What's this? fuel tank look like? How does this all work? The complexities of it. You got two systems working in parallel. Uh, there's some complexities to it, but I think they're coming. There's a little more of a rationality to it of it's trying to cover both situations. If you really want a vertical takeoff and landing where you really want to be able to hover and really take off vertically, you're going to need a lot of a big power source to do it. So it's kind of a, a combination of the best of both worlds. Yeah, and that seems like a good system. I know you're a fan of the the hybrids, and especially with battery technology not being as proven out as it needs to be yet, um, with just the the weight and the you know the energy density of it. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's an interesting idea that this this could use pump gas. Uh, that seems <laughs> like, I mean, is that common to to turboprops? Is that like no? W what aircraft use pump gas? Not many, hardly any. Right, because uh, you, you know the the aviation world wants to control the fuel you're putting in in the aircraft because it matters so much. Right, so if you go to the local convenience store and buy gas, there's a greater than twenty percent chance it's going to have water in it and not be the best fuel. Mm -hmm. In the aviation world, you want to have consistency in the fuel you're burning, so you don't tend to use 
standard automotive gas. That's why you don't do it. And that's why you use that gas or something that's a lot more controlled and, and monitored. Um, obviously, like the little ultralights, the parachute airplane things have used that kind of gas forever because they're basically using chainsaw motors or two-cycle motors to, to do their thing. But for most aircraft, that just really makes zero sense. Because if you lose that fuel source, are you flying anymore or are you going to do damage to the engine because you got bad gas going into this really expensive engine? It's a problem. It's a really big problem. So you don't, you know, from the, just from the design standpoint, you don't start there typically. All right. Well, that'll do it for today's episode of Struck. If you're new to the show, thank you so much for listening. And please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out the WeatherGuard Lightning Tech YouTube channel for video episodes, full interviews, and short clips from the show. And follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at WGLightning. Tune in next Tuesday for another great episode on aviation, aerospace engineering, and lightning protection. Strike Tape, WeatherGuard Lightning Tech's proprietary lightning protection for radomes, provides unmatched durability for years to come. If you need help with your radome lightning protection, reach out to us at weatherguardaero.com. That's weatherguardaero.com.